Amen. Amen. Those of you who are old enough to remember the presidential campaign of 1976, I know we've got a lot of young people here, but most of you would remember that. And you will remember how Jimmy Carter made news on the basis of two things. First, he was the very first presidential campaign uh, running for, candidate for president who claimed to be born again. But then he also was the first presidential candidate, to my knowledge, who admitted to committing adultery in his heart many times. While I, we admire his candor, but the truth is, I don't know of any man on the planet Earth who has not committed this type of adultery in their hearts. I'm not going to ask you to say amen. You know it's a fact. And today I'm going to continue in the theme of the Lord Jesus Christ who taught that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, you shall not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees and the scribes. We saw what that righteousness is. What is that righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes? It is the keeping of the law perfectly every single day of your life, all the time. And nobody has been able to do that except the Lord Jesus Christ. And that righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribe is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, without Jesus, you and I are up the creek without a paddle. I want to put it bluntly, like we used to say in the 60s. Baby, without Jesus, you've had it. You've had it. We all have had it. You know, preachers who say to people, I just want you to feel good about yourself. You heard that? Yeah. They're misleading them all the way to hell. Uh, those preachers who say that all the power is in your tongue, you are in total, you are mighty, you're powerful. It's in your tongue. If your tongue names it and your tongue claims it, it you'll get it. And if you don't get it, it's your fault. But the only thing they're going to get is a shock on the other side of eternity. Those preachers who say, God loves everybody, and therefore He will not judge anyone. Huh. They are deceiving people. Deceiving people all the way into eternal destruction. Why? Because without Jesus, we've had it. Because His righteousness is the only righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And that is why the verses that I'm about to deal with in this part of this series are of uttermost importance, and I'll tell you why. Because our culture is absolutely sexually charged culture. And that is why I want you to focus with me. I'm not going to get on my hobby horse and flog it to death. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, add, I'm going to say what Jesus said. 
And we have been seeing in the, throughout the series of messages how on the Sermon of the Mount, God the Son, who came to earth, was revealing to us, expounding to us, telling us about God the Father's original intent when He gave those commandments to Moses. I don't think there's ever been a time in history, to my knowledge, and I know a little bit of history, where denomination after denomination after denomination that have become obsessed with what they call human sexuality. It occupies their convention time. It occupies their debates. It occupies their thoughts. They have made an idol of this issue. Uh, and they are now bowing to that idol and worshiping that idol. And I think I'm safe to say that today, many a church has erected and worshiped the idol called sexual revolution. And so many churches are bowing down to the new morality, which is nothing but the old biblical immorality. No wonder church after church have lost their grip on holiness and on sanctification. No wonder church after church have rejected biblical discipline and moral accountability. Are we surprised now that our society at large has dismissed the church as irrelevant and ineffective? Are we surprised? Are we surprised now that the evil forces are out to malign and muffle the voices of those who are Bible-believing Christians who are saying, thus says the Lord. Are we surprised? Look with me, please, at what Jesus said regarding the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. It's found in Matthew 5, verses 27 to 30. And if you do not have your Bible, the Pew Bible, page 1502. And we're going to do what we have been doing, and that's stand up in honor of the words of God, and then going to read them together. You have heard it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Lord Jesus, theologians tell us that this is one of the hardest saying of Jesus. But we know that you do not say anything frivolously. And so I am praying in the name of Jesus. I'm, in, I'm petitioning heaven for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone to be our teacher today. In Jesus' name, amen. We saw in the last message, those of you who are following this series of messages, that because all murders begin with selfish anger, God is telling us that you need to start there. Start with anger in order to prevent the full-blown murder. And here he tells us that all acts of adultery start 
with obsessing with someone else who is not your husband or your wife. Therefore, we should start there. We just start there. That's the beginning. We have seen in this series of messages that God is concerned with the source of sin, that God is concerned with the origin of sin, that God is concerned with what leads up to sin, and you've got to stop it at the source. Again, in the last message, we saw also the absolute necessity of dealing with anger biblically, because if you don't deal with it biblically, you're going to get into trouble. In fact, here he tells us the absolute necessity of dealing with the thought that leads to adultery. It all begins with the eye. <laughs> the eye is very powerful. The eye is the gatekeeper to the thought. Uh, the eye is the key to the thought. And that is why our Lord starts there. There was a celebrated artist by the name of Sir Peter Lilly, an English artist, a painter. And uh, he made a, a vow to himself that he would never look at a bad art, bad work of art. Here's what he said. I quote him. He said, My experience taught me that seeing bad art subconsciously influences my brush to reflect bad scenes produced by my own mind. Anger and sexuality and sexual conduct are two of the most powerful emotions. You don't think our Lord knew that? That's why He starts there? And yet, the person who allows anger to reign supreme in his or her life will soon find that they are controlled by anger and not a, a controlling anger. And the same thing happens with sexuality. When uh, you begin to allow that thought to possess you, it's going to lead to adultery. Listen, we've got to stop here, and I'm going to tell you, listen carefully. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe that sexuality is a gift of God. We believe that God created sex as a gift between husband and wife in a heterosexual marriage. And yet man perverted that gift as perverted all the other gifts. Don't ever forget that God is the creator of pleasure. Did you hear that? It is not Hollywood who created pleasure. It's God who created pleasure. And it is between man and woman in monogamous relationship, and it's delightful. God is the one who created us as sexual being. But that sexuality is only legitimized in heterosexual marriage. But listen to me. Just as anger has to be controlled by God's power and God's power alone working in us, so must also sexual attraction must be controlled by the power of God working in us. So what is Jesus saying here? He is interpreting the seventh commandment. 
He said, let me explain to you what my father meant by this. Here's his original intent. This is what he wants you to know. And he is saying that all of God's gifts come with operating manual. <laughs> all of God's gifts come with operating manual. Now, I know all the type A men like me, we don't, we don't like manuals. But, but, but in this case, <laughs> God's gift uh, has to follow, you have to follow the operating manual. Otherwise, you'll be self-destructing. Margaret Thatcher, the former prime minister of England, is one of my favorite people. I really admired her throughout her time and, and until she passed away. I, I just admire Margaret Thatcher a great deal. Here's what Margaret said, and I'm not equating Margaret Thatcher <laughs> with the Word of God, but it was amazing to me to see somebody who understands this and puts it succinctly. She was quoted in the Independent newspaper October 12, 1996, and I quote, Our sexuality is like a fire. A fire in a fireplace is wonderfully delightful thing. But put it out of the fireplace, and it burns the house down to smithereen. Good English word. There are some people who are listening to me right now around the world and right here in this beautiful sanctuary who call themselves Christians, but they have rejected the biblical teaching of sexuality and sexual purity. Let me tell you, let me speak to you from the bottom of my heart. Uh, first of all, I am not a stranger to opposition in that area. <laughs> As some of you know, I used to belong to a mainland denomination uh, where my stand on biblical sexuality brought me condemnation. They call me every name in the book. So I'm not surprised to, when I hear it now because I started way back. Some wondered aloud and asked, what rock did he crawl from under? That was, they, they did this loud, actually verbally. Others said, doesn't he not know this is the 20th century? Think about this. <laughs> what would they say now in the 21st century? Others have said, even the Victorians were more flexible. Well, the truth is, Victorian, I'm not. Now, those of you who do not know about the Victorian era, let me explain to you. <laughs> In the Victorian era, sex was something very shameful, and good people never talk about sex. During the Victorian era, the book of the Song of Solomon was banned, <laughs> it was rejected. But my friend, the Bible is very clear from cover to cover, and that's why we need to be truthful with ourselves. The Bible is very clear that it is only in heterosexual marriage that a husband and a wife delight themselves in each other. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 says, Each man should have his own woman, and each woman should have her own man. But there is something else that I need to make very clear right at the outset here. Jesus is not speaking about normal attractions. That's not what he's talking about. I'm going to come explain to you the Greek word here for a minute, in a minute. He's not even talking about the temptations that we all face. 
he's not even speaking about the thought that is fleeting. Remember Martin Luther said, he said, a bird can fly over my head and I can't do anything about it, but if it starts nesting in my hair, I can do something about it. Now, he's talking about being obsessed with someone who is not your husband or your wife. One very prominent evangelical theologian, one of the most respected person, explains the Greek word means to persist in leading into enticement. It is obsession that comes day and night thinking that I must have that person, I must have that person. But I must hasten to say that all of this begins with emotional intimacy. If you heard me say amen. Emotional intimacy. Listen carefully. Because sometimes we don't keep an eye on that one, and then it trips us. You see, any emotional intimacy other than with your spouse… It's the first step to adultery. Husbands and wives, listen to me. I'm going to say more about this in the next message when when Jesus talks about marriage and divorce. But we must learn how to affair-proof our marriages. In this ministry, in this church, some of you know this, most of you probably don't know, but we have certain guidelines and certain rules about sitting with the door shut with anybody of the opposite sex, or even get in the car with one. We did this 33 years ago in order to protect ourselves and protect others. You see, you've got to start there. You don't wait until you're in the, tr- in, in, in the ditch and you say, whoops. No, no. We start with that emotional, emotional intimacy. And the best way to affair-proof your marriage is not to get emotionally hooked with somebody who's not your spouse. Because of that relationship between the eye and the heart, the eye and the heart, that's the situation. This is the relationship that Jesus is talking about here, which gives us the next two verses, which if you don't listen very carefully, you might misunderstand those two verses, 29 and 30. They're very important, very important. If your right eye, you see, back then they thought anything left is sinister. So, well, I tell you what, they really knew what they were talking about. (laughs) Even Proverbs says, uh, I'm I'm, going to move on. (laughs) If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. And that is why this really needs a huge explanation. I hope you're listening. It needs a huge explanation. Because I can tell you, if this is meant to be taken literally, just about everybody everywhere is eyeless, handless, and legless. And that's why we send people to seminary. We spend money on them, and they take years of studying in seminary so they can study Greek and Hebrew, study the languages in which the Bible was originally written. Why? 
because not understanding the original meaning of the text, in fact, throughout history, it led to the rise of many cults and many false teaching when they don't understand the biblical language. As a matter of fact, throughout history, there have been some people who took those verses literally. I know some of you don't believe it, but let me me tell you. I'm going to give you some examples. In fact, the best known was a third-century theologian. Excuse me, he happened to be Egyptian. You know, the most of you probably did not know that the center of Christianity, by the end of the first century to the middle of the 300s, the center of Christianity and Christian thought was in Alexandria, Egypt. The first seminary in the world was in Alexandria. And this fine gentleman from Alexandria, Egypt, by the name of Origen of Alexandria, a great theologian, we consider him one of the early fathers, he went to extreme asceticism and mutilated himself. And after that, the leaders of all the Christian churches from all over the world, known world at the time, from Antioch, from, from Egypt, and from uh, Jerusalem, they all gathered together in a town of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed in 325. And they gave us the Nicene Creed from that conference, but they also forbade this barbaric practice because they realized that it is not what the Scripture is meaning here. In the Hebrew language, there is a figure of speech. Well, you know that in, in English is a simile in this, but there's a figure of speech known as the Hebraic hyperbole. What is that Hebraic hyperbole? It's a form of speech that uses dramatic form of speech to highlight a point. Like a dear friend of mine, a pastor says, I am not exaggerating, I'm just blowing it up so you can see it. That's, that's, he, has, he must have Hebrew background. <laughs> this type of speech is the very opposite of what our generation is now thinking and striving. What do I mean by that? Instead of pampering and indulging ourselves, we need to exercise self-discipline. Can I get an amen? Self-denial. And we need to understand that Jesus is not recommending mutilation, but mortification. Jesus is not recommending mutilation, but a resolute determination to reject sinful practices. It is not mutilation that He's recommending, but dying to self-indulgence and instant gratification. Here's the point. If there's an area where temptation comes through the eye, don't look. Pretend you're blind. That's really what it means. A friend of mine, Mark Rutland, said, if you talking to men at the men's retreat, he said, if you drive in the car and you see a beautiful woman and, and, and you, kind of, you notice, and uh, that's fine. He said, but if you drive around the block and come back and look again, that's adultery. <laughs> if your hands that caused you to sin in the past tempt you, 
Pretend that you're paralyzed. Put your hands in your pockets. If your feet took you to places that caused you to sin in the past, pretend that you can't walk. I know, I know, I know. We often blame young people and say, oh, this generation, this generation, sometimes I fall in that myself. But listen to me, listen to me. I'm going to be truthful with you. Make no mistake about it that the baby boomers, my generation, the baby boomers who started all this. Remember in the 60s, the big motto was, trust your feelings. Nobody should be thinking. (laughs) Instant gratification. And don't have to wait for anything. We wanted everything yesterday. What happened is the subsequent generation just took a little further and a little further and a little further. I'm amazed at how many people, even of my generation, who would spend five hours in front of the tube every day, but they, the moment in the church that the pastor goes five minutes over time, they develop a condition that only happens in churches. It's called antispantus. Now, you look it up when you go home. Five minutes, it's gone over time. We spend hours in the ball game. God took care of that. (laughs) (laughs) But not one hour in intimacy with Jesus. We can pursue leisure with vigor. But when it comes to serving God, man, we're tired, just tired. We spend thousands of dollars on gadgets and toys but not tithe. Here's what Jesus is saying to every believer. Listen to me. Heaven and your heavenly reward is far, far more important than any temptation. Heaven and your heavenly reward is far, far, far more important than temporary gratification. Uh, Eternity and eternal reward infinitely longer than any momentary pleasure. In fact, Jesus is saying more than that. He is saying that it is better to accept alienation by the world than risk losing your heavenly reward. It is better to accept cultural amputation in this world than risk the loss of your eternal reward. It is better to be prudish in this world and experience that, than experience the test of fire at the end time. Question, what is that test of fire that Jesus is talking about? Well, most of you know this, but in case you don't know, all the believers have escaped the judgment of hell. Therefore, there is no condemnation upon those who are what? In Christ Jesus. Thank you. But every believer in Jesus is going to have, is going to stand before a judgment seat that is different from the judgment of the world, will be judged in a different way. And it's to do with our eternal reward. 
The Apostle Paul gives us an explanation of that in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, particularly verse 15. He gives us really an imagery that will help us understand what this judgment seat of Christ is all about. It's if Christ has gone to light a torch, a fire, to every one of our works on how we lived our lives, He's going to light a fire. And every believer's work will be tested. What we've done in the flesh, how we lived our lives, have we been faithful or unfaithful? All the believer's deeds will be tested by fire. Imagine the lightning of that torch for the life works that you and you and me have been building through the year on the foundation of Christ. If your work has been for the glory of God, serving God, denying yourself for the sake of Christ, that fire is going to make you shine as the fire does to gold and silver. But for those who have indulged themselves and pleased themselves and not Christ, our work will light up that fire as if it's a dry hay or straw. It will burn. Some people are going to be walking around heaven smelling like fire. Here's what he said. We will be saved as by escaping through the flames. <laughs> the Lord is talking about this judgment seat of Christ in front of which every believer is going to stand. Every believer is going to stand. You know the one, one text in the Scripture that really gives me the tremors? <laughs> We're going to give an account for every idle word came out of our mouth. Boom! I have spoken many idle words that I cry to God to for forgive me. But that's the point that is being made here. 2 Corinthians 5.10, he says, each one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Each one of us will receive what is due to him or her for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. And so here in Matthew 5, 29 and 30, this very difficult two verses, Jesus is not speaking about being saved or lost. He is speaking of the kingdom of God. And the assumption here, because he's speaking to his followers who are already saved, in other words, he's saying to the believers, hear me right, please, hear me right. It is of uttermost importance to demonstrate the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he imputed on you, the righteousness of Jesus Christ that he gave you, the righteous robe of Jesus Christ that surpasses that of the Pharisees. He is saying, this is a serious business. Don't take it lightly. And that is why, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul goes on to say, be careful how you build, how you're building your life, 
How are you building your life? How are you using your time? How are you using your energy? How are you using, using your talent and the gifts? How are you using your treasure? He said, be careful how you build. You and I builders, we're building every day. Self-indulgence or self-denial? Self-pleasing or Christ-pleasing? Self-gratification or self-discipline? It's a superstructure that each of us are building in our lives. Is it gold and silver of faithfulness or a straw and hay of unfaithfulness? Is it the gold and silver of righteousness of Christ or the straw of seeking our own happiness? Ah, God wants me to be happy. I don't find that in the Bible. Nothing against happiness. I'm a happy guy. I'm very happy, actually. Let me illustrate to you and expound on the words of Jesus here by telling you a story that will illustrate the opposite, the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying, but it will make the point. You'll, make it, you'll understand it, a true story. An Oxford University student was brought to the university hospital complaining about pain in his right leg, just below the knee. A batteries of tests were conducted, and the doctor came and broke the bad news to this young man. He had cancer centered below his knee. And the cancer was so advanced, there was life-threatening. And so the doctor strongly urged him, begged him, pleaded with him to let them amputate his leg below the knee so that they can save his life. But he absolutely refused. He was adamant. And so they attempted to treat the cancer with chemotherapy and radiation. And while it showed the cancer slowed some, it didn't get rid of it. The doctors again began to plead with him and urge him to amputate, to save his life, but he again adamantly refused. He was gambling on that slender chance that the cancer might go into remission, but it did not. Within three months, they found a second growth in the liver and the kidney. Six months later, he died. Afterward, two of the team of surgeons went over to visit his heartbroken mother. And they asked her, why did he refuse to let us amputate when the operation most certainly would have saved his life? This absolutely broken-hearted mother stammered as she explained. He has been very proud of his looks and his athletic ability. And he said, I'd rather die than lose my leg. And he did. Beloved, that's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. The little sacrifices you make in order to save for all of eternity and eternal reward. Someone would say, well, Michael, Jesus is setting forth an impossible standards. Uh, no one can follow. 
And if that is your question, let me tell you, you are absolutely 100% correct. <laughs> Beloved, listen to me. Sin in any form, any form, any form, is so subtle and so deceiving. And none of us can deliver ourselves from its clutches. Let me tell you that this impossibility that Jesus has set forth is twofold. Listen carefully. Twofold. First, Jesus wants all men, women, boys, and girls to despair of their own righteousness and seek His righteousness. And secondly, our Lord's remedy to our sinful heart is a new heart, is a new heart. People who say, oh, I'm good, I haven't done anything bad, not, not really something very, very bad. I, I, I kept the golden rules, and, you know, God will have to let me into my heaven. Listen to me, please, please, please let me plead with you. Think again. Most people who say these kinds of things, I'm okay, I'm good, they can't even live up to their own standards let alone the standards of Christ. So what some of them try to do, as we've been seeing in the churches at large, pastors and theologians and priests, what they've done in order to keep people happy, they lowered the bar all the way to the ground so they tell people, well, step on it and you, over it and you'll be fine. Oh, they're going to pay. <laughs> Just wait. The day of judgment is coming. This is tragic because all they're doing is allowing people to dig deeper and deeper holes. And that is why sometimes you see them angry and call the Bible-believing Christians names. They're expressing their anger because we would not allow the lowering of the bar. And we confess our sinfulness without Christ and inability to save ourselves without Christ that only His righteousness is going to take us all the way home. I'm getting close to the end. I don't want to lose you in this last part here. Because I want to speak to the believer who's watching around the world or here in this beautiful sanctuary. I want to speak to you, to the person who is unfaithful to his or her marriage vows. I want to speak to you for a minute. You cannot sin deeper or further than God's grace. Did you get that? Our God is a bondage breaker. Come to him confessing and repenting. And the Bible said his blood will cleanse us from all, how many? All unrighteousness. And so let me finally tell you about a man whom we know as St. Augustine. <laughs> he was far from being a saint. He was a playboy, adulterer, and he lived a wild life. He comes from 
what's modern-day Algeria and Tunisia, that area in North Africa. By the way, a friend of mine two years ago produced a film called The Son of My Tears. I encourage you to find it and watch it. The Son of My Tears, and it's in French, English, and Arabic, and, and won many awards. The Son of My Tears. It's the story of St. Augustine. He was living this wild life. Meanwhile, in North Africa, his mother, Monica, was crying tears over him and pleading with God to save him. And God heard her prayer. And he was thoroughly converted to Christ, thoroughly converted to Christ. And immediately, his life began to change began to change. He rejected his former lifestyle and began to live for Christ. One day after that happened, he was going back to Rome for business. He was discipled by a, a godly bishop in, in Milan, actually. But he was in Rome. And as he was walking in the streets of Rome, a voice of a woman in the back who recognized him, and she said, Augustine, Augustine, is that you? He turned around and said, yes, that's me. And then when he saw her, he recognized this is the woman that he was shacking up with for a long time in, the, in his past. And he began to run and run. And he go back and said, it's not I, it's not I, but Christ lives in me. <laughs> Only Jesus can set us free. Only Jesus can set us free. You know, if you're a person who's watching and not in this church, we created with this national campaign, we call it FindingTruePeace.com. Thousands, in fact, tens of thousands of people are responding to that campaign on national television. And if you want to know more about Christ, go to that website, FindingTruePeace.com. And there you're going to find somebody who's going to help you walk with you. And my beloved friends here in this church, we are blessed with some unbelievably wonderful pastors. Every one of them would be willing to walk with you wherever you are, whatever help that you need, whatever stage of, of your Christian walk you're in. Call them. Meanwhile, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. As together, we're going to confess Father, without you and the power of the Holy Spirit, we cannot hack it. Father, without your righteousness, we are dead in the water. The righteousness of Jesus Christ, we come in confession and we come in repentance. Lord, I know repentance is pa painful because any purging is painful. And so we come to you in the name of Jesus and we ask you for your help and your strength. And then, Lord, I pray for our pastors in this church. Bless them. Continue to equip them so that may, together we walk with one another. For I pray this in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said amen.